Hello, friends, and welcome to another brand new episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I'm your host, Joe Webb, and this is a podcast for spiritual exiles, for all of us who are trying to live into some kind of faith and spirituality outside the fences and the walls of institutional Christianity. Before we get started, I'm really excited to let you know that Accidental Tomatoes has been selected as part of the Podcast Ambassadors Program for the Wild Goose Festival this coming July 13th through 16th at Van Hoy Farms in Union Grove, North Carolina. This gives you, as a follower of our podcast, a chance not only to get a discounted ticket, but also the opportunity to join us for a live episode of Accidental Tomatoes during the weekend of the festival. We'll have more details about that to share with you soon. Wild Goose is a transformational community grounded in faith-inspired social justice. It is a -a one-of-a-kind gathering that brings together activists, artists, and seekers from all walks of life to explore justice, art, spirituality, and community. From engaging workshops to inspiring panels and interactive experiences, Wild Goose has something for just about everyone. It's a big part of why Accidental Tomatoes exists in the first place, and it's become a place where many of us have found a community that inspires, encourages, and supports us in our quest for justice and liberation in the world. So mark your calendars, and let's be part of this incredible community together that's committed to making a positive impact in the world. For more information, visit www.wildgoosefestival.org. And if you'd like to experience this year's festival and you want to save a few bucks, you can use the discount code TOMATOES to get $50 off the price of an adult weekend ticket. So go to wildgoosefestival.org, click on the ticket link, and put in the discount code TOMATOES, T-O-M-A-T-O-E-S, to get $50 off your ticket price. I hope to see you there. Speaking of the Wild Goose, our guest for this episode has become one of the most popular speakers at the festival. Josh Scott, the pastor of Grace Point Church in Nashville, Tennessee, has been talking for the last several years about how a more deeply contextual view of the Bible can lead us into a richer, more meaningful experience of the scriptures and open us up to a more inclusive, more liberating worldview. Josh sat down with me a few days ago to talk about his new book, Bible Stories for Grownups, which releases in early April 2023. Josh was with us back in season three of the podcast and was gracious enough to make a return visit to talk about his new book, how it came about, and the kinds of conversations he hopes that it will generate. So please join me in giving a warm Accidental Tomatoes welcome to my good friend, Josh Scott. We, we read, we've tended to read the Bible just to prove it's inerrant and fallible. Like all of our readings are meant to do that and to wrestle with how we know it's true and literally true and all of that. And what that does then is it completely ignores what's going on in the text and it ignores the layers and the nuance and the conversation and the push and pull from different authors. The Bible really isn't, a, it's not a univocal text. Well, hey there, folks, and welcome back to another episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. And I'm so excited to have uh, Josh Scott back in the uh, the virtual studio again. Um, it's been a while, Josh. How you been, man? Joe, I'm doing great. It's so good to be back. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so good to see you. I'm so excited uh, to get to talk to you because you have got uh, your first book 
um, is coming over. I guess in some outlets it's already out, but it's coming out in some other ones here uh, a week or so from when we're recording this. So yeah. uh, Bible stories for grownups, right? Yeah, that's uh, it. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to talk about it. Before we get into the, the book itself, um, do you mind just kind of introducing yourself for the folks, for anybody who might not have heard your um, your previous uh, podcast with us, uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, so um, I've been a pastor for 20-some years now, which feels impossible, but here we are. Um, I'm originally from the coal fields of West Virginia and Eastern Kentucky. Um, grew up there and have been uh, through a couple different denominations and really settled into the free agent world, <laughs> the non yeah, yeah, yeah. world. <laughs> Um, but I've been a pastor for a long time now, and I've been uh, writing and thinking and wrestling with a lot of these Bible stories for a long time, and um, finally got to put some of it down on paper that other people get to read. Um, otherwise, uh, my wife, Carla, and I have been married for 18 years this year. I've got five terrific kids and one somewhat terrific dog, depending on the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we understand how that goes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I kind of, uh, became familiar with your work when we met at the Wild Goose Festival a couple of years ago. And that was the first time I had heard anybody kind of contextualize some Bible stories the way you did. And, and, um, and so you've kind of taken that and expanded it into, to now a book format. So tell us a little bit about Bible stories for grownups. You know, I was thinking, I was trying to look back, but uh, uh, the dates are a little foggy. I think the first time I ever did a series of sermons called Bible Stories for Grown-Ups. It was like 2006, 2007. Um, and that was a part, you know, when I was really beginning my own sort of faith shift and unraveling where I was learning context and was learning to read the Bible through that lens. And over the years now, which has been going on 20 years since that first series, I've revisited this series again and again and again with different stories and just found that every time I would talk about a story through a contextual lens and just sort of tease out stuff that is actually right there and obvious, but it's not obvious if you've not been taught to read the Bible mm, through that yeah. lens, that people just responded with a lot of energy and enthusiasm, and they realized that the Bible may be way more interesting than we thought. And so um, when the publisher had reached out to me and said, you know, we've, we've kind of noticed your work, do you have any ideas for a book? And I said, I've got like 50, um, but here's the first one. <laughs> and uh, threw out Bible stories for grownups, and they um, it, it's immediately kind of resonant. And and so um, it, it's, it's really cool to, you know, hold, hold this thing in my hands after having done a series around some of these stories for this long. And now it actually exists in a book form. It's pretty neat. That's terrific. So how did, how did you come to that, um, that initial understanding of, context because i think that's one of the things that we have just we've just been missing that point yeah. in the church for such a long time we've tried to pull these texts out of their you know first century or prior you know context mm -hmm. and, and plop them down in 20th and 21st century america uh, and then try to to extract these timeless truths from them um without understanding what the stories would have meant to the very first per people who, who lived through them and who heard them. So how, how did you kind of start down that path? Yeah, but you know, what you're so right. It's so important. I was um, a guest speaker in a class for a friend of mine who teaches a class on Bible, uh, introduction of the Bible at Belmont University here in Nashville. And she said, what are like three things you would say to people? She was doing a, like a question response. What are like three things you would say to people is the most important thing when you are starting to approach the Bible? I said that immediately came to my brain, context, 
context and context. Yeah, it's yeah. super important. For example, uh, one of the stories I treat in the book is the parable of the talents. And we've been taught to read that parable um, with God as sort of a severe master who divvies up responsibility and then punishes people who don't do what they're supposed to do. But when you understand the Bible is written by people who were on the underside of power, when you understand that the Bible is written by people who had been oppressed by one empire after the, another for generations throughout their whole history, yeah. it become, you know, so what, what you begin to realize is as a, as a, as a straight white cis American man, I come to the text and read it as if it was written by people like me. Yeah, and I and what happens as a result, I end up being on the wrong side of the stories. Mm. I I end up finding you know wanting to identify God as this powerful, vindictive person, when I think the story is meant to show us that where you find God is with the people who are being oppressed, with the people who are receiving the um the the brunt of powerful people, yeah, uh, and their punishment. And, and so, how did I get there? It started when I was in college, and it was one of the first times I, I sat down. It was, I think it was the fall of 1999. I sat down in an Old Testament Hebrew Bible class, which I'd been told not to take because it would ruin my faith. Um, <laughs> and, and they were somewhat right. They weren't wrong. Yeah. <laughs> they, they just didn't tell me that ruining my faith was a good thing. And it was right. <laughs> but it's, uh, when uh, the teacher, she she was also a Presbyterian minister, and she just started teaching us the Bible in context, the Hebrew scriptures. And I, I, it like dawned on me, oh my gosh, this, this has, this, these stories have roots. It's rooted in a specific soil and a specific people and a specific time with specific mm. geopolitical events going on that were influencing it. And so after that, once I graduated college, I just started reading everything I could get my hands on. You know, uh, Rob Bell, when he was doing some of his early work around context. Right, right. Then, you know, uh, so Rob turned me on to people like Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan. And um, I just started reading all these people who were actually putting the Bible in context. And then going back to the Bible itself, it was like I was reading it with a new lens and was noticing things I didn't notice before and started. Honestly, I started to be a little suspicious of my initial readings of texts. Oh, yeah. Because my initial readings of texts always ended up locating God, in the, I think, in the wrong spot, among mm. the powerful, among the wealthy, among those who are doing the damage. When I've become thoroughly convinced that if you want to locate God in the scriptures, if you want to locate Jesus in the New Testament and stories, you will always find them among the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized, those on the underside of power. And it shouldn't surprise us because Jesus pretty much says that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I think it was Rob Bell where I first got the notion. It might have been Brian McLaren, one of those, yep. that where I first got the notion of the Bible as literature by and for the oppressed, yep. um, by and for the exploited and the marginalized. And and I don't – we don't know how to read literature like that, um, especially um, – 21st century white folks, right? We just mm -hmm. really, and that's why I think it's been so important um, the last few years um, that that we've been starting uh, in, in in white literature, anyhow, to pay a lot more attention um, to to uh, womanist treatments of scripture, mm -hmm. to black treatments of scripture, to queer treatments of scripture, just so we can begin to to understand what how marginalized folks approach those texts in ways that we were really never taught to do. 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, Brian McLaren in, in Brian's um, endorsement for your book, he says um, many Christians have a naive understanding of the Bible because they were taught by people with the same understanding. Right? Do you, do you kind of see um, your book and, and some of the, the other work that's influenced you as sort of a, a corrective to that pattern maybe? You know, I, I hope so. I, I hope it is when people, and I remember sitting down to talk to the publisher about marketing for the book and they said, well, who, you know, who, who do you hope reads this and what do you hope it does? I said, you know, for people who just are looking for a deeper dig on the Bible, I hope it gives them that for people who are, have been wounded and hurt, but missed the Bible. I hope it gives it back to them. But for people who are pretty certain that, that they're, you know, that this is how it is and we've read it right forever. And I hope it's a little disruptive. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I hope it shakes some things loose because, I mean, I think the way, you know, growing up free will and Southern Baptist, and this was really, you know, the language of Southern Baptist, but it was this, the, the same vibe was true in the free will Baptist church I grew up in. We, we read, we tended to read the Bible just to prove it's inerrant and fallible. Like all of yeah. our readings are meant to do that and to wrestle with how we know it's true and literally true and all of that. And what that does then is it completely ignores what's going on in the text and it ignores the layers and the nuance and the conversation and the push and pull from different authors. The Bible really isn't a, it's not a univocal text. Yeah. It's a library of texts. And in that library, it's just like going into any public library, you know, you wouldn't go into a public library, pull two or three books off the shelves, open them up from different genres, from different open them up, find that they all don't say the same thing, and then walk out saying, well, libraries are useless. Yeah, But, but yeah. that's sort of what we're taught, right? Like, if you don't believe the Bible is this, then it's of no use to you. When for me, letting go of those doctrines actually made the Bible come alive in fresh ways and actually helped it speak more meaningfully and, and more uh, speak more of a challenge into my own journey, my own preaching, my own engagement with the text. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, it, it gets, gets folks like us called a heretic, a good bear, right? Sure. Sure. Your, 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 uh, your ability to respond to those, um, Twitter trolls, um, <laughs> always impresses me because <laughs> you just, I just love the way you wear the badge with honor, right? If that's what you're going to call me that, you know, call me that. <laughs> you know, I got a tattoo, right? Oh man. I got, Oh yeah. Yeah. I got, yeah. I got a heretic tattoo because I was sort of like, what gives something like that power is, is when you try to push back on it. Yeah. And what's, what's cracks me up. You mentioned social media. It it says heretic in my bio. And every time (laughs) somebody is like screenshots it and puts it up, they're like, gotcha. I'm like, you know, I put that in there. (laughs) Yeah. Like Twitter didn't add that. I put it in there. (laughs) Oh man. It's uh, yeah. Yeah. It's something else. Well, I love, um, I love, the, the take that you're taking on scripture, I love that it's opening people's eyes up more to, to that kind of, it not just, it's not just surface contextualization either. It's like you, you go deep into that rabbit hole. Like what, what would these people's lives have been like? Right. Um, what does, what does it feel like to be under the boot of the Roman empire in first century Palestine? What does your, um, what does your vocation look like when, you're being taxed by the empire and, and taxes are being siphoned off, you know, by, by, um, unscrupulous folks, you know, between you and the, <laughs> and the emperor. I mean, it's, it's, um, it really, um, it really takes that idea of oppression and marginalization 
and brings it to the forefront, I think, in ways that, that other authors haven't done. Um, so, so you took the book and you organized it by six chapters where you're looking at six kind of essential stories. What was the strategy there behind, um, behind doing it that? Cause it sort of emulates, I, I read in some of the, the promotional literature, it sort of emulates the way we do like kids Sunday school curriculum in some ways, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when I sat down with them, I wanted to do like 50 stories. And they were like, how about we do six? <laughs> like, okay. So. Plan ahead for the sequel. Right. right, right. And I wanted to, I wanted to take um, three from the Hebrew scriptures, three from the new Testament, three. And I wanted each of the stories to be pretty well known to, to had, you know, existed in the popular imagination. So, you know, the story like Noah and the flood or Jonah and the fish or the binding of Isaac. Um, in, in the New Testament, Zacchaeus, where right, there's what a what a well known mm -hmm. story we grew up singing about that as kids. Yeah, yeah. And because and I wanted to take well, really well known ones. I mean, there are others that I find super interesting. If you're at Wild Goose a couple when we met at Wild Goose a couple years ago, I, right, I right. did a, a version of uh, this on the story about a wedding party. Um, right, right. Which yeah. I found super interesting. We wanted to stick with stories that had a you know were, were pretty well known in cultural imagination. Because those are the stories that if you can begin to break them open and show people I mean, there's way more going on here, then, you know, what I hope really is not that people will go, well, those are those six stories and that's how you, maybe you can read them. What I hope happens is that throughout the process of showing people how this works, that it is, it is helping them hone their own skills for going back and mm. at least going, I bet there's something more going on there than I think. And, you know, now let's go dig into it and see what I can yeah. discover. And one of the, one of the, like, for example, one of the things, and this is not in the book, but one of the things I've learned recently that has been so interesting to me, and it was I, uh, something I heard John Dominic Crossan say in passing was that um, it, it, around the time Jesus would have begun his ministry shortly before um, the, the uh, Herod Antipas moved his capital to, uh, it created a serious city called Tiberias and he commercialized the lake. Mm, yeah. What yeah. does it mean for Jesus to go call fishermen out of the commercialized lake? It, mm. It's it's almost like not only is he calling disciples, but he's he's essentially <laughs> kind of taking away some of the empire's ability to get taxed. Yeah. And when I mean all that's that's everywhere in the New Testament. It's everywhere in Scripture, and it's just about developing the eyes to see it, to know. Oh, there may be something. It seems like the details they drop are really, really significant for shaping what the story could mean. And I hope through the book that people, I at least help people realize that the little lights on your dashboard are always blinking yeah. when you read the Bible. Yeah, I, I think that's such a helpful way of looking at it. I've, one of my complaints kind of for a long time has been with the way that we do kids Sunday school curriculum, especially, is... We tell these nice, neat little stories, and you've got to tell stories in a way kids can understand, obviously. Um, but, but one of the things I noticed when I kind of started getting into ministry, you know, vocationally was we tell these stories, but we tell them as if they exist on these little individual islands, and we never connect the dots. And what I see you doing with this format for this book is not only taking these these very you know well-known popular stories and helping us look at them a different way but it also helps us connect those dots so we see 
this this sort of historical um, narrative arc mm-hmm. that forms, even though they are different genres written at different times, yep. you know, um, multivocal, as you said, you know, different people writing them. Um, it, it helps us connect. Oh, these things are not unrelated to each other. And I think we teach the Bible so siloed sometimes, yep. so segmented, right? Um, yeah. It- and so like, what I do in the book is like, if you want to understand Noah's flood, you have to go all the way back to creation because Noah's flood is a commentary on what's happening to creation as a result of human violence. Mm-hmm. If you want to understand the story of Zacchaeus, you actually have to go back and understand what happened between Jesus and the rich young ruler. These, these are not just stories that are disconnected and just kind of living on their own. Uh, these are stories that, you know, as, as the writers, uh, as the as the editor of the Torah, as the writer of the gospel, as they tell their story, they're not telling little disconnected narratives. They're weaving sort of a tapestry of this, you know, for the gospel writers, it's, this is who Jesus is for, for me and for our community. And I want you to see it. And so, you know, it's easy to go and pull a, a segment of the life of Jesus out and say, this is a neat story. And those stories have power, but they have more power when they are connected to the stories that come before and after them. Yeah. Yeah. Which can be hard in a sermon, right? Because people don't want to listen to a three hour sermon on how this is all connected. So finding ways to creatively introduce it is important, but I do think being able to step back and and look at the gospel, like a, like a gospel mark as a whole. And then as you, as you teach it, it can begin to be influenced by, okay, here's where this is all going. Here, Here are the notes that are being sounded early that are going to come back later and mm. it, it just, it's a more holistic approach. And I think it honors the work uh, of our ancient spiritual ancestors. And I think it, it helps us engage it in a really meaningful and faithful way. Yeah. I, I love that. I, as, as a, an English major, um, me too. you know, the ability, yeah, yeah. The ability, you know, and that, that's just how we approach literature in general. Right. Um, you know, we, we learn to identify, themes and to identify, you know, an author's use of um, literary techniques like metaphor and um, allegory and things like that. And yet somehow when we read the Bible, we've we've been taught to just strip all that away um, and not think about the biblical writers as being creative individuals who are trying to come up with a way to express what their encounter with the divine looks like and what it means. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that kind of brings me to, to another uh, question regarding contextualization in the um, in the preview of chapter one that's available on Amazon. You, you start in with the flood narrative and, and you start right off talking about the 1977 flood in Williamson, West Virginia, um, before you were born. Um, yeah. But but the way that influenced, you know, your your family's narrative. Right. And your family story. And then I think back you know, five years before that, the the Buffalo Creek disaster yep. um, in 1972 that wiped out, you know, entire communities in the West Virginia coal fields. Um, can you talk a little bit about how stories like that can help people from marginalized communities today, maybe mm. connect more closely with the biblical narrative? Yeah, yeah. And those stories, I mean, it, what's interesting is how, you know, I was born in 81, so missed that 77 flood. But group, I mean, it, it was it was an ever it felt ever present in some ways as a little kid. You know, it came up a lot. My you know my dad lost his family, lost everything. He was a senior or junior in high school, 
Um, and, you know, so those stories, when you think about them, the way, you know, taking the Bible out of it, the way those stories as they're passed down shape experience and they shape how we see the world and our place in it. I think that's what's happening with the stories in the Bible. I think the authors are telling stories, first of all, to express what they've, what they've been through, but also in some ways to explain what they've been through uh, and to offer mm. a hopeful, uh, hopeful vision. I mean, that's what people often miss about apocalyptic literature, um, right? Like the book of Daniel, for example, and the book of Revelation, although the book of Revelation, I think is a little different in that um, it's, it's offering hope, but it's a really, really violent uh violent text you know for yeah. in the book of daniel it's sort of like this is where this is what our people have been through but there's hope and we're not going to let go of hope that uh, on the other side of all these beastly inhumane dehumanizing empires that there could be a really human kingdom where people are valued and their humanity is celebrated and and so the stories are often what carry us um, you know, as uh, growing up, uh, my great grandfather passed away years before I was born, but, uh, but my great grandmother was such a good storyteller that I could tell stories about him as if I knew him mm. yeah. and those stories yeah. carry us, right? They connect us to our past. They give us hope for the future. And even a story like Noah and the flood, which, you know, I have no idea why we've decided that needs to be the thing on the cover of every children's Bible. It needs to be painted <laughs> on every church nursery. It's animals on a boat smiling with Noah. There's a rainbow. Uh, and then you read the story. It's not all smiles and, and rainbows. It's a really right, ugly yeah. story. But even those stories, I think, are trying to process what is going on in the world and how do we respond to it? And how do we hang on to hope that things can be better even when they look really ugly and awful and hopeless right now. Mm. And I think that's the only reason we end up passing stories down to connect us and also to inspire us to, to move towards something better um, and, and to sort of embed hope into the narrative. Yeah. Yeah. At, um, at wild goose last year um, during one of your um, presentations, I, I asked you a question and it, and it really, your answer really resonated me with me because the folks who have had the public square from American Christianity have largely been the folks who, you know, very fundamental understanding of the Bible. Uh, you know, apologetics is sort of the goal, as you kind of mentioned earlier. Um, and, and they filter everything that happens in the world through those lenses. And I remember asking you, like, where's the progressive Christian voice in the public square? How do we get, you know, how do we get elevated? And, and I think your answer was something along the lines of, your hope was that at least you would like to see maybe not the fundamentalist voices replaced with the progressive voices, but at least have at least one progressive person responding to these world events because we seem to never have that voice. How, how do you see books like yours and, and this kind of growing um, theology of, of contextualization helping to get you know more of a progressive Christian voice out into the public square? Yeah. Yeah. It, that is so frustrating because it's the sort of fundamentalist conservative response is assumed to be the one that's grounded in the Bible and assumed to be the one that actually represents Christianity. And, you know, I, I, I do, I think, I do think that there's coming a time, I don't know that we'll get to live to see it, but where fundamentalists and conservatives are so going, they're going to exclude away so many people that they become a minority. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that opinion is not the first one. But I do think it's important for some people, some of us, 
to be able to into some of these big important discussions where uh, ex, you know exclusive hateful bigoted rhetoric is sort of defining the the discussion for people to be able to say actually there's an alternative to this yeah you don't have to yeah. you don't have to do this this way um and I, I remember a few weeks ago i think it was um you know mark driscoll had said something just horrible um and i just responded to it by saying to people hey if you're tired of this this isn't the only option for you yeah, there, there yeah. are ways of being christian and expressing this faith that are faithful that love and value the bible that cares that, that are you know jesus is centered and yet it's not that it's a more generous and just and expansive and faithful way of being Christian. And I think it's so important because I think there are so many, so many people who um, would love to be able to remain Christian, but they haven't been able to because the only option they've been given is sort of the hateful, bigoted, conservative, yeah. narrow, anti-science, anti, you know, woman, anti-LGBTQ, anti, you know, uh, or pro-white supremacy. And um, I, I posted a clip um, in Nashville a couple weeks ago um, right after some really hateful anti-LGBTQ legislation was passed by the supermajority, somebody, um, some people took a, a, a flag, they put up a big banner, had the state of Tennessee on it, and they had a Nazi symbol in the middle of it, swastika. And it was thanking the governor for passing this legislation. Mm. And I responded to it the next Sunday um, and, and talked about the need to stand against this, and the, you know, that condemning Nazis should not be a partisan issue. Yeah, and yeah. I shared that video on TikTok, and the number of people, uh, you know, and it ended up being seen by uh, like twenty some thousand people, right? And the number of people who said, I, "If I had known this was an option, that there was a way of being Christian that would stand against these things and call them what they are, maybe I wouldn't have left." Yeah, and I just think people people don't know that there are ways of being Christian that embrace science and learning and growth and yet value Jesus and scripture and, and community. Um, so yeah. I think it's so important to get that out there. Yeah. I think, you know, a, a lot of us who are on that kind of deconstruction journey, um, you know, we, we often, you know, kind of take the heat that, you know, you're just, you're trying to do away with scripture. You don't want to, you don't want to live by the rules or whatever. And, and nearly everybody I know, not every single person I know, but nearly everybody I know, who is going through something like that isn't trying to just shed their beliefs. They're trying to find something better to believe in, right? Something that makes more sense and something that is more just and more equitable and more liberating than, yeah. than what we've been handed. Yeah. Um, and you know, Joe, the thing that always gets me is when people say stuff and I keep saying, I've said this almost every conversation I've had where, where we're in this ballpark, I end up bringing this up because I think it, it's really important. But I, I hear people say when they're defending their anti-LGBTQ or anti, you know, exclusive, whatever views, um, where they're, you know, God's going to send a big chunk of humanity to hell forever. And they'll say something like, you know, that's, it's not my deal. Like, I, I didn't come up with it. This is, this is what yeah. God says. It's, I wouldn't do it this way. And I'm always stunned by that because what mm. I want to say to them is, is, listen, if you are more compassionate, kind, forgiving, generous and, and good, if you are better than your understanding of God, it may be time to trade in your understanding of God for a better one. Yeah. Because if, if I can be better than God, 
then we, you know, if I love people more than God loves people, if I'm more forgiving than God is, we got a big problem. Yeah. Yeah. What, what role do you think fear plays though in that, um, in that kind of interpretive stance? Fear is the driving factor. Yeah. In that stance. And, and, and that's why I think when people see Christians who love the Bible, love Jesus, when they see us articulating a faith that is not grounded in fear and that has space for mystery, when if, if you, you know, I, I assume our backgrounds may be at least a little similar. And, uh, you know, growing up, my faith gave me two things, fear and certainty. Mm, yeah. fear, fear we don't need and certainty we can't have. And so when people who are operating under that fear and certainty and the fear of letting go of certainty and the fear of being wrong and the fear of standing before God someday and being condemned for eternity is so great. When they see other people who are sort of free from that and they're able to just explore and ask questions and doubt and not freak out about it because doubt and faith aren't opposites. Faith and certainty are opposites. Mm. Like when, when you're able to really, no wonder people get upset because they are, they are scared to death. And and when they, I think when people who are operating in fear see people who are free from fear, it triggers something. Yeah, and and yeah. that's why the response is so hateful and angry. Um, it's coming from that, in the depths of their being, they have been given fear and told that this is God. Yeah. And it's not. Yeah. And, it, and it's so hard to get people released from that. I, I've got a, a nephew that when he was... He's in his early 20s now, but when he was 16 or 17, um, he came to my new wineskins gathering with his parents, my sister and her husband. And I was talking about trying to to get rid of this fear-based narrative, right, that we've kind of inherited. And that kid's whole world opened up um, because he had never considered a faith that wasn't primarily driven by fear. Um, and I think, you know, we, we talk, I talk a lot about Phyllis Tickle's, um, great emergence and that mm-hmm. the 500 year rummage sale. And I kind of wonder if that's not maybe part of, of this big historical shift that we're beginning to see. I think, I think folks like you and I are on the front end of, of whatever's going to happen here. But I do think we're finally starting to see a Christianity that is rising up and saying, you know what? We're not going to be ruled by this fear anymore. It's not biblical. Um, it's not what we perceive that, that God or the divine or whatever desires for us. In fact, <laughs> I think we have a, a pretty strong narrative case to be made for um, for thriving yeah. um, a, a, and love and community um, that, that, you know, what the Bible says a number of times, you know, perfect love drives out all fear. And yet we root our definition of love in, in fear. fear right? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, people often say, well, how do you know you're right? What if you're wrong? And I just, I, you know, I've made peace with this. Uh, if I'm wrong and our fundamentalist siblings are right, then I will stand before God one day and gladly cast my lot with the folks going to hell because <laughs> because that God is not something or someone I would want to spend eons and eons with. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, you know, yeah. you know what I mean. There's a certain amount of this. This God is the, the God that I grew up with in so many ways. You know, it was God loves you, but there's an asterisk. It was yes. God is good, but there's an asterisk. And uh, I want a God without an asterisk. I, I need a God who is just good, a God who just loves us, 
a, a God who um, is not not to be feared or uh, not to be um, I don't want to say pleased, right? This God we have to constantly please. Yeah, I always yeah. go back to Jesus's baptism. And what I love about that moment in, in the story of Jesus is we, we don't know anything about his life before then, right? In the earliest gospel, we have Mark. He just emerges in the wilderness to be baptized in the Jordan River. And he's not done anything yet. Nothing that we know Jesus will do in the gospels. He's not given a sermon. He's not told a parable. He's not healed anybody. He's not raised the dead. He's not performed a sign. He's done nothing of note that we know of. And yet in that moment of baptism, the voice of the divine says, you're my beloved in you. I find happiness with you. Sometimes I'll say with you, I'm well pleased. And it's like that. that it begins there. Not with yeah. measuring up, not with pleasing the finger shaking God. It begins with God saying over every human being that has ever entered the world. I'm pleased with you from the moment you enter the world. Now, what, what if you lived as if that were true? And I think where we get sideways is in this week. Oh, we've got to prove it. We've got to measure up. We've got to be, you know, prove that we're holier and more righteous than everybody else. And that that's yeah. just a trap that we get stuck in with a God that's not worth being stuck with. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This this might be a little bit of a rabbit trail, but it, what you just said reminded me, um, for some reason, it reminded me of something I read in um, N.T. Wright's book, The Challenge of Jesus. And he talks about this question about whether Jesus um, was aware of of his identity, writes languages as the second person of the Trinity, right? Was Jesus even aware that he was, you know, the son in the in the Trinitarian framework? And and N.T. Wright, who was no liberal by any means, um, says something really interesting. And he said that um, Jesus may or may not have known anything about his own divinity, but he did have this this strong sense of vocation that that really you know compelled him to do the things that he did um that to me really tracks with um a, a lot of what i've heard you talk about a lot of what folks like mclaren uh and, and rob bell and some of those that we've talked about uh cross and have talked about um that there's this sense that humanity has a vocation right and if jesus is um, the the ultimate fulfillment of humanity, then then we all have the opportunity to live into this. And and I say all of that to say I don't think you get there by by any kind of rigid um, um, rule following. I guess um, mm -hmm. you get there through this extraordinary, extreme amount of love, right? That's, yeah. that's always inclusive and never exclusive. I don't know. Does that resonate at all? Or yeah, and I'm looking for. I wanted to share a quote if I can find it that I just oh here it is I just shared this on Twitter I was listening to a lecture from uh, Walter Wink from the late 90s um, that's what I do in my spare time listen to you know <laughs> old lectures on Jesus he, he said he said this and this I, I, I condensed it a little but these are his words divinity is fully realized humanity the goal is not to become what we are not divine but to become what we truly are human and I mm. think that's where the church has gotten sideways on Jesus um, yeah. We started using, you know, um, we, we've used language that he wouldn't recognize to describe something he wouldn't have recognized, I think. When in reality, Jesus is not trying to get us out of our humanity. I think the story of Jesus is inviting us to actually enter deeper into it. And I think mm -hmm. our big problem as human beings is not that 
you know, when, when you, when we mess up, we'll say I'm only human, right. Or our humanity is kind of the scapegoat for what we do wrong. And yeah. I actually think that we, we need to change the language because I think when we, um, when we harm one another, when we're hurtful, when we do things that are damaging, I don't think it's our humanity. I think we're living beneath our humanity. Mm. And so the, the invitation and the call there is not escape your humanity for divinity. It is realized that when you treat one another this way, you are living beneath the good humanity that God gave you. And that to be fully human uh, is actually the goal. I love it. I love it. I, I, there's a whole commentary in there too. We could unpack about kind of our hyper individualistic Christian society and how, how that shapes the way we read scripture. You know, we yeah. read it through the lens of, you know, the whole point of this thing is to get my personal disembodied soul, post-mortem right. soul, you know, into, uh, you know, some luxury cruise destination, <laughs> <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> Rather than living into it as humanity together, right. Uh, you know, as, as a collective, as uh, a community together. I think, I think we've lost a lot of that. I agree. Um, yeah. Well, we're coming close to the end of our time, Josh. Um, I, you know, before we close out, I did want to mention, um, not only is the book, um, it, releasing as we speak, um, here in the next uh, couple of weeks, but you saw, you've also got like a, a leader's guide and a DVD to go with. Can you talk a little bit about how that's all created to go together as a curriculum for folks? Yeah. Yeah. So Abingdon, um, one of the things they do is they try to package things in a curriculum. And so there's a leader guide, there's a um, DVD where I sort of just briefly break down each story and, and sort of share, share some interesting bits about it. And um, it's kind of ideal for churches who are doing Sunday school or churches that have small groups or something, you know, home groups, something like that, where people can watch it. And, you know, there's a leader guide for the leader to help kind of process what's going on. And then, um, and I'm also, you know, one of the things I want to do is if there's, or if there are churches that decide to adopt this as a curriculum for us, you know, let's say a sermon series that has breakout groups and that sort of thing, I would love to figure out a way, even if it's on Zoom or something, to be able to do a session with them and just, you know, have respond to questions and hear their feedback. Um, if there are pastors planning a series and they would like some time to, you know, to talk about, kind of where they're going and questions I have, I'd be happy to do that. So I want to make sure that I really hope this is helpful for not only individuals, but for communities. And so I want to do anything I can to make that uh, more functional and, and more accessible. That's fantastic. And, and one of the things I love about you, Josh, is um, you have made yourself so accessible um, to folks like me who are asking questions and trying to help um, other people discover kind of a better story to live into. So um, really, really appreciate you. You will most likely be getting a, uh, another new wineskins invitation oh, um, with so. our community. Uh, Cause I'm hoping our community will dig into this work here sometime this year too. And I want to give credit for that to, to Brian McLaren, Brian McLaren um, from the time he didn't know me from anybody. And when I told him how much his work meant to me and asked for time, he immediately said, yes, and that's yeah. the kind, and what I love about the space we're in, as opposed to the evangelical space I grew up in, was the evangelical space was very much about creating celebrity pastors who yes, were really yeah. inaccessible. You could see them on stage, but you would never get to talk to anybody. And what I found in this space is the people whose work meant a lot to me have been so accessible and oh, yeah. so willing to to respond to questions or just to be encouraging. And if I can do that in any way, I mean. If you know, to me, Brian McLaren is one of those, you know, 
voices in my life that every time I talk to him, I still can't believe I get to talk to him. Yeah. Yeah. And if, if there's any way I, you know, that I can be helpful to people, I just, this movement matters to me. And to our earlier conversation, I want to see a viable, strong, benevolent, progressive Christian movement. And it's going to take all of us working together to make that happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and just that gives us an opportunity to plug Wild Goose Festival again, too, because, yeah. you know, that that is a place where, you know, these folks that we're talking about, um, people whose books I've read and whose sermons I've listened to are, you know, they're there, they're available, they're eager to, to join you in conversation. I remember the first time I met Brian McLaren, we talked for 20 minutes about fly fishing. Mm-hmm. We didn't even really get into to a lot of theology stuff, but it was just, you know, having a common interest with with folks like that. Um, it, it's a great venue um, to be able to have just those real conversations um, without, you know, the gatekeeper um, in between you and all of that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Josh, where can folks find the book? How can they get in touch with you and and follow the work you're doing and and all of that? Yeah. So the book is available on Amazon for pre-order now. Um, And uh, I think the Cokesbury store is already releasing them. So I know a couple of weeks ago, before I even had my copies, somebody brought a copy that they'd ordered um, to church to have me sign. And so those are, you know, if you order from Cokesbury, I think it's a little cheaper there and you can probably get it before it actually releases. Um, if you would like a signed copy, I'd be, ha- you know, I'd be happy to mail. If you have Venmo or whatever, we can work that out. But um, you can email me at josh at gracepoint.net. And that's gracepoint with an E on the end. Uh, we'll be happy to get a signed copy in the mail to you. Um, you can also find me at um, joshscott.online. That's my Substack, And um, I'm currently doing just some short podcast episodes instead of writing mm-hmm. right now. It's just been easier for me to just sit down one morning a week and just kind of dump my thoughts into a you know, yeah. 20, 25 minute uh, episode. So if you're interested, I'd love to have you. Um, it's free. So you can subscribe for free and it'll come straight to your inbox. And then if you're interested in what we're doing at Grace Point, uh, gracepoint.net, or you can find us on YouTube, Grace Point TN. Our gatherings are every week at 1030 uh, Central. Very good. Very good. Well, Josh, thanks again uh, for, for being my guest here for this episode. I uh, can't wait to read the book. Um, really anxious to dive into it and, and bring some other folks along with that. And hopefully see you again at Wild Goose this summer. I'll be there. Can't wait. And thanks for having me back. Getting ba- invited back to places is always great. It means it didn't go really poorly the first time. Or second time. So, thank you so much. I can't wait to see you this summer. All right, great. Thanks again, my friend. We'll talk thank to you, you soon. Bye. Uh-huh. You know, friends, it's so refreshing uh, to me, anyhow, to hear from Josh and to hear his perspective on the Bible and how a more contextual reading can really open us up to the kinds of changes that are really needed in our world and in our society today. I hope you'll grab a copy of Bible Stories for Grownups. Uh, And if you're able, I hope you're able to read it together with a group or with your own faith community. I want to thank Josh again for being part of our Accidental Tomatoes family and for taking the time to be part of this very important conversation. Once again, I'd like to invite you to join me and Josh and a bunch of other really cool and interesting people at the Wild Goose Festival this July. Remember, you can use the discount code TOMATOES to get $50 off of an adult weekend ticket. Just go to wildgoosefestival.org to find out more. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback or any ideas you have for future episodes. Uh, And if you love the podcast, please give us a five-star rating and give us a review on whatever streaming service you use so that other folks can find out about awesome folks like Josh and, and our other guests. 
You can always reach us through our social media pages. Just do a search for Accidental Tomatoes on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. Or you can email us directly at accidentaltomatoes at gmail.com. And so until next time, my friends, keep on growing outside the fences. And join us again for another brand new episode of the Accidental Tomatoes Podcast.